again in the fall. And we'll be studying the book of Galatians coming up uh, in September. So uh, my wife and I, we recently moved. Um, we moved to a house just 10 blocks north of here. And as I uh, was kind of walking through our, our new neighborhood, as I was praying, with uh, just wondering what the Spirit would want me to preach on uh, this week, want me to say to us as a church, uh, we realized just lots of, uh, lots of stuff about our new neighborhood. We, our old house, we lived across the street from a big wall that was next to 35W, so we didn't have a ton of neighbors, but now we live more, more in a neighborhood, so there's houses everywhere. And one thing we noticed is that there's yard signs everywhere. So if you live in uh, Minneapolis, maybe also in St. Paul and other cities as well, they, there's lots of yard signs, but especially in our city, especially in our neighborhood. And we saw these yard signs all over the place. So you, you probably recognize them. The one on uh, the right there, all are welcome here. That one's everywhere. It's actually uh, designed by a, a Minnesota group. And uh, as we're seeing these yard signs, the Spirit just put on my heart, that sounds a lot like Jesus. That really does sound uh, like Jesus and his message. In the gospel, Jesus truly and fully welcomes everyone to himself. Today we're going to see how it is, Jesus' gospel, Jesus' good news, is the greatest and the truest form of inclusion that the world has ever seen. And it's not just good news for Christians, it's not just good news for the people that are in here in this room today that call themselves followers of Christ, but it's good news for the entire world. It's actually the best news, the best version of inclusion that this world has ever seen. So today we're going to be looking at John 3, uh, the end of verse 14 through the verse, uh, through verse 18, kind of the verses around the most famous Bible verse, at least according to the internet, John 3, 16, that many of you are probably familiar with. And we're going to see how in Jesus' response to a guy who was asking about his kingdom, a guy who was asking about what, what do I have to do to be saved? What does your kingdom look like? How can I get in? Jesus responds with, these, this John 3.16, which many of you are familiar with and we're going to read, and, and this great uh, acknowledgement that all are uh, included, that he really does welcome everyone, that he wants everyone to come to himself. So we're going to read from John 3, uh, the end of verse 14 through verse 18. Uh, you can follow along on the screen. It's also in your insert uh, in your worship folder as well. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So the setting of this passage, like I said, starts off by a Jewish religious ru ruler coming to Jesus and asking him questions about his kingdom. So Jesus has shown up, he's preaching that his kingdom is at hand, the kingdom of God is, is near, and this religious ruler is, is intrigued by Jesus. He, he, he wants to at least ask more questions. And so he comes to Jesus at night and, and asks him questions about how does someone enter into God's kingdom? Ask him questions about salvation. In our passage today, what we just read is a part of Jesus's response to this guy, to this religious ruler. And the first thing we notice is that something must 
happen. In order for God's kingdom to be ushered in, in order for salvation to come, in order for death to be defeated, something first must happen. The very first verse says, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. This thing must happen first before salvation can come. And we know from the rest of the story that Jesus is speaking about his crucifixion, that you have to die lifted up on a cross for the sins of the world in order that this eternal life may come. And then the next thing we notice is Jesus' clear expansion of God's redemption. It says, for God so loved the world. If you're here in our, our sermon series in Genesis, so quite a, it was two sermon series, uh, uh, two sermon series back. In Genesis, we saw the beginning, the, the creation of the universe and everything in it, and then we saw the beginning of the story of human history. And in there, we see that God especially covenanted with his chosen people, with, with, with the nation of Israel, with Abraham and, and his descendants. And the majority of the, the Old Testament is God focusing on saving and preserving his people, the nation of Israel or, or, or the Jewish people. And we know that that wasn't the whole story. We know even with Abraham, Jesus, or God uh, covenants with Abraham, makes a promise with Abraham, and that says, through your seed, through your offspring, and we know that that offspring ultimately is Jesus. We see it here in, in John, as well as in other parts of the Bible as well. But through Abraham's offspring, the entire world is going to be blessed. All tribes, tongues, and nations are going to be blessed. And we kind of saw it in Zechariah as well. We see kind of hints and whispers that God's salvation is going to come to all nations. But for the majority of the Old Testament, God is, is mostly loving and protect, protecting and providing for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. So when Jesus shows up and he's talking about his kingdom and talking about salvation, when he says God so loved the entire world, it would, it would begin to blow the first listener's minds, this religious ruler's mind. Well, I thought we were God's chosen people. We are the true descendants of Abraham. But this starts off by Jesus saying, God so loved the entire world. And it continues, he loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son. This, this again, this Bible verse most quoted or most looked up online, read it on the internet, so it must be true. So a lot of us know this verse, right? A lot of us know John 3.16, or may, maybe you don't know John 3.16, but you have at least heard this phrase, but this should just rock us. And often it doesn't because it's so familiar to us. But this type of love that God has for the world is not just, uh, well, the, the type of love that he has for us is a costly love. It's a sacrificial love. I have two beautiful children. There's my wife there, Amy, and then Charlie, he's four, and Esther, she is one. And as I was studying this this morning, just praying about it again, I was just rocked by that truth. That God loved us so much that he gave his only son. If you're a parent here today, put your child's name in there. Think about how much love it would take for you to give up your child. And this should just rock us. This should, this should, this should change us. This is not just some kind of love that, well, God's infinitely wealthy, so he kind of just gives us a, a part of his wealth, but rather he loved us so much that he gave his innocent, perfect, holy son for us. And the rest of today, we're going to unpack what that looks like and why that is so important, why that is so costly, why 
that is so beautiful and why it is such good news. So not only does God love the world, not only does God love everyone, not just Israel, not just the Jewish people, but Jesus himself does as well. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, before Jesus uh, dies, he says that no one takes his life from him. So it's not God the Father making God the Son go to the cross, and Jesus is like, no, Dad, don't, don't, kicking and screaming. He does say he wishes that there was another way, but he submits to the Father's will, and he says, no one takes away my life. I, I choose to lay it down. So we know that Jesus also loves the world, that he loves us enough to die for us. Second Peter 3, 9 speaks of Jesus not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance and belief in him. So in Jesus' response to this religious ruler, we see that God deeply, deeply loves everyone, loves the world, and Jesus Christ does as well. Jesus' inclusive love continues by using these words, everyone and whoever, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. And whoever believes in him shall not perish. Note here that it doesn't say, and the people in the line of Abraham who believe will receive eternal life. Or it doesn't just say ethnically Jewish men, if they believe, they will enter the kingdom. Or that only those who strictly follow the law and the Old Testament rules will get in. But rather it says everyone who believes and whoever believes. Salvation is offered to everyone. It doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, your gender, your education, your sexual orientation, your country of origin, your wisdom, your abilities, nothing. Salvation is offered through Christ to everyone. Later on in the New Testament, after Jesus' death and resurrection, they pick up on this. Galatians 3, speaking of our salvation, says, For in Christ you are all sons of God, so adopted sons and daughters of God, through faith. Again, this is how we receive salvation, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So with regards to your salvation, it doesn't matter your ethnicity or your race. It doesn't matter if you're Jew or if you're not Jew, if you're Gentile. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status or how powerful or how wealthy or how influential you are. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. And it doesn't matter what gender you are or identify with. All are welcomed by Jesus equally and fully to receive his salvation. This truth about Jesus' inclusivity the truth about Jesus including and welcoming everyone is why so many churches throughout history have, have championed the phrase, all are welcome. We have it here on our, our sign right outside, right outside our building, as well as many other churches throughout history have, have championed this phrase and put it on their buildings and, and set it to their cities. All really are welcome here. Because Jesus welcomes everyone to himself. Not because we're trying to get a bigger church or because we're trying to necessarily influence more people or, or make our church bigger than others. But the reason all are welcome here is because in Christ, all are welcomed to himself. So us as a church, we intentionally try to remove barriers that would make people feel unwelcomed here. 
Because Jesus welcomed everyone to himself, because he's welcomed us to himself, we try to demonstrate that and show that off here when we gather on a Sunday morning, as well as when we gather in smaller groups outside of this as well. So we deliberately have people at our doors welcoming people with a smile and a handshake and answering questions that they have. We, we intentionally have a casual atmosphere and we offer good coffee and we welcome people from uh, the beginning of our service and up here on stage because we really want people to feel welcomed and wanted and included because in Christ they are. The gospel is already hard, hard enough news and we're going to get to the hard news a little bit later on in the sermon. And so we try to, to show and demonstrate Christ's welcomeness, Christ's inclusion so that people can actually get to that and hear that good news that often is, is a stumbling block, that often is really hard. So Christianity is unlike all other religions. You might not have thought that before, but, but all other religions, essentially what they're saying is that you have to be a certain type of person or at least do a certain type of thing really, really well and over and over again in order to be welcomed, in order to enter. But with Christ, it is different. Christianity is the most inclusive religion, the most inclusive faith out there, because everyone, and we mean everyone, truly is welcomed, truly is invited to come empty-handed, to come nothing required, to come just as they are and receive Christ's salvation. There's this great picture of it back in the Old Testament in Isaiah, I believe it's 55, where it talks about salvation. It says, come and buy without money. What a great picture, right? Come and, come and buy, but you don't have to pay anything. Come and receive empty-handed. So think about all the other world religions. They're actually not inclusive at all. Some require great knowledge and wisdom in order to be accepted. And if you're not that brilliant, then you're out. Others require money to kind of move up the, the spiritual ladder. You pay for sessions and you get kind of higher up in, in, in the religion. So if you're poor, tough luck. Some religions require specific ancestry or ethnicity. And if that's not you, bummer. You're stuck in a caste system without any hope of moving up. Other religions value men or power or influence. If that doesn't describe you, you're stuck on the outside. And many religions require you to be devout, disciplined, and to live a perfect life in order to enter. The doorway being a certain level of good deeds and works. But if you can't perform, or if you can't get to perfection, you're out. Or you can't even get in in the first place. Craig Lucan writes, Christ's offer of forgiveness and salvation is perfectly inclusive because it is based entirely on his work. The, beneficiary, the beneficiaries of such grace, what the church is called to be, therefore have no reason to boast in their own superiority, be it financial, educational, social, cultural, racial, etc., since they know their greatest asset is pure gift. No other religion or worldview consists, considers salvation as 100% gracious. And yet that is precisely what makes them all more exclusive than Christianity, not less. If I have to save myself from the sinking ship in any way more than just admitting that I'm sinking, then my salvation will be based on my own strength 
and the hierarchies become inevitable. So again, like I said, my, my wife and I moved into a house just a few blocks north of here. And like I said, one of the first things we moved in as we're just walking through our neighborhood, praying through our neighborhood, just getting to know what, what Cooper and, and Longfellow really look like, we noticed these signs everywhere. All these yard signs, signs in people's, in, signs in people's windows, signs in the windows of buildings and uh, restaurants, coffee shops, bars, etc. And it might kind of seem silly or insignificant, but it's actually a great view into what our culture and what our city values and loves. What they see as the problem and what they see as the solution. And like I said, this is one that we saw everywhere. There's literally 20 of these if you'd walk from the church building to our house. They're everywhere. And so we learned, or more accurately, we, we were reminded of our city and our culture's high value of inclusivity, of including everyone. So much so, people want to make it very clear, they want to make it public, and it's even a hill that they're willing to die on, that all are welcome here. And they stick this sign in, in their yard or in their window. Similarly, at a coffee shop that I like to go to just a few blocks from our house, the sign was in the window. We welcome all races, all religions, all country, countries of origin, all sexual orientations, all genders, all abilities. And all these posters, these yard signs, and many similar ones, I bet you can think of many more that are uh, in your neighborhoods as well. All these just demonstrate our city's high, high value of inclusion. Minneapolis and St. Paul, the Twin Cities, even Minnesota in general, wants to be a place that welcomes other people, which is a great thing. And we see that all these different forms of inclusion, we see that same thing in Jesus Christ, but so much better. We see that same thing in John 3, in a cosmic, eternal, divine type of way as well. In John 3, when describing why Jesus was sent into the world, he describes his mission as dying on a cross so that whoever believes in him will be saved. This all stems out of his profound love for us, wanting to welcome everyone, whoever would believe, to himself. The gospel is the truest and the best version of inclusion. Now to be very clear, we're not downplaying these signs or this value that our culture has it really is a great one on many levels. Nor are we saying our culture is wrong and, and non-Christians putting up this sign or even Christians putting up this sign or posting this on social media or, or sharing that they highly value this. We're not saying that at all. What we're going to see is that through the gospel, true and ultimate inclusion is actually possible. Not just this kind of vague, our neighbors kind of are glad that we're here or that we're welcome in a certain restaurant or neighborhood or coffee shop. True and ultimate inclusion is actually possible through the gospel, an inclusion that goes way beyond what these yard signs are trying to get at. And this is how we move towards our city, as Christians, as missionaries sent by Jesus into our city to spread the gospel. This is how we do it. We don't run away. We don't look at the yard signs and the Facebook posts of our neighbors and our coworkers and our family and friends and think, man, they are very different than us. We better run and hide, and maybe we'll kind of have 
these like surface level relationships with them, but I really hope they don't ask what I think about X, Y, and Z or else the relationship's going to be broken. So Christians, we, we shouldn't run and hide, but rather we should move towards our city. So today we're going to talk about inclusion, but it could be, could be any value that our city has. It could be freedom, it could be equality, it could be peace, it could be diversity. We need to move towards our city and show them that in the gospel, the greatest version of every single one of those values is actually true and is actually possible and is actually given to those in Christ. So let's look at inclusion here today. So the inclusion that our city champions is just a shadow of the greatest version of inclusion that comes through the gospel. Tim Keller talks about how the church needs to interact with culture. We need to move towards the culture and show them that Christianity is not just a new set of values. It's not just a new set of ethics or a new set of morals because they think they already know what we believe. And they think, or they've rejected it. They've said, Christians believe X, Y, and Z, and that's opposite of me, so I can never become a Christian. Tim Keller argues that instead, we should show them that we actually have many of the same values, or, or actually what our, our city and our culture values, underneath all of that are certain things like, like freedom and equality and justice and peace. All those things are ultimately things that we get through the gospel. So we need to show people, or try to win them to a person, try to win them to Jesus Christ and to his gospel, as opposed to just letting our city see and think that Christianity, all it is is just a different set of moral beliefs. Our challenge as a church and as Christians moving towards our city, towards our culture, is to show them how what they value is only fully received and understood through the gospel. Just like we saw here today, and we'll talk about even more with the value of inclusion. So let's look at inclusion now. Let's see how it comes through Jesus and how in Christ, in the gospel, it's the best and ultimate version of inclusivity that our church is so, sorry, that our culture and our city is so attracted to. Through the gospel, inclusivity, our Christians having inclusion, welcoming people, we can actually have true motives. Obviously, we're sinful and we, we don't have true motives all the time, but the world and our, and our city in general, the reason that they love inclusivity so much is kind of more out of like a golden rule type thing. So they want to be included. They want to be welcomed into their city. They don't want to be ostracized or kicked out or feel unwelcomed. So they say, yeah, this, this idea of inclusion, this idea of all are welcome here, I like that because it will benefit me. And again, we're not saying everyone who's not a Christian is, is, has horrible motives and is super selfish or prideful. But in general, most people, the reason that this sounds so good, all are welcome here, is because a lot of people in our city are those people described in that poster. And so they, they, they want a city that welcomes people, and so they're going to champion that as well. But through the gospel, Christians can actually have pure motives, and, and, true motives. What, what, what I mean by that, rather than just saying, I believe in all are welcome here because it gets me something, or because I want people to do that to me, through the gospel, we can say, that's my story. God has done that first with me through Jesus. And because of that, how can I not welcome other people? How can I not include other people? How can I not move towards others? So let's go back to this poster again. 
So what our city says, we value, we welcome all races, all religions, etc. This is our story. If you're a Christian here today, this describes you. This describes me. Jesus welcomes all these different kinds of people, and those describe us. Jesus welcomes all races. So most of us in this room are not ethnic, ethnically Jewish. So praise God that, that he welcomes all races, that he did not just stick with the nation of Israel or with the Jewish people. Galatians talks about this. We, we saw that earlier today. So praise God that he welcomes all races to himself. So that's our story. All religions. Romans 1 talks about apart from God intervening, we're going to worship ourselves or we're going to worship false gods, gods that look like humans or gods that look like other created things. So apart from God intervening, left to ourselves, we would be worshiping false gods. So praise God that Jesus welcomes people that worship other religions. The third thing, refugees, immigrants, people coming from different countries of origin, that's our story too. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 talks about us, apart from Christ, being far off from God, being distant from him, even being called aliens. The New Testament also speaks about us and our ultimate citizenship not being here on earth. So that's our story too, Christian. By God's grace, we're actually able to plant a church uh, later this fall called Risen Church. And one of the things they especially feel called to do is to move into the part of the city that is very ethnically and culturally diverse. And they want to reach those people. They feel like God's given them a specific call to reach a specific part of the city. And so what they're going to do is they're going to show and demonstrate this part of the gospel as they move towards people who are different than them. As they move towards people that look and sound and act different than them, they're going to show and demonstrate the gospel of a God who moved towards people that were very different than him. A God who became like those he was trying to reach. So the next one, all sexual orientations are welcomed and all genders are welcomed. We know that we are all, when we truly look at our hearts and truly know ourselves, we know that we all are unable to have perfect and pure thoughts and actions. And Jesus, even in his teaching, when he shows up, he raises the bar to show that even lustful thoughts, whatever kind of lustful thoughts we have, demonstrate that we are spiritually broken and spiritually, or sexually broken and in need and demonstrate our perfection. So thank God that he welcomes people that are sexually broken in all different kinds of ways. And finally, all abilities. This is our story too, right? We cannot earn our salvation. That's the gospel. We cannot earn our salvation by working hard, by having great abilities, by doing really good things. So praise God that all abilities are welcomed in Christ. So this is our story, Hiawatha Church. This is something we can get behind. Those of us in this room who are Christians today, this is our story, spiritually. So how can we not naturally want to do this? And again, we're not talking politics. We're not talking, people going to have different opinions on, on politics and how cities run necessarily. But spiritually and individually, this is our posture towards the world. This is our posture towards our city. Notice, too, how the, the all are welcome here signs, they sound really good. It's a really good tweet. It's a really good sound bite. It's a really good yard sign. Yet it still has holes in it. Right? It's good, but it's not perfect. 
I have a friend whose kid noticed this exact sign in his neighbor's yard. And the kid asked the dad, what, what does this sign mean? And the dad explained to him, well, it means, you know, that, that, that person believes that all people can be welcomed here. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you've done. And, and this boy looked at his dad with this really curious, confused face and goes, even robbers? Even bad guys? But the power of the gospel is that even bad guys are welcomed by Jesus Christ. Even robbers, even thieves are welcomed by Jesus Christ. Jesus' invitation isn't conditional. You don't have to be worthy to be welcomed by him. You don't have to have some great value or have done some great things in order to impress him before he'll welcome you. Jesus is all our welcome here is the truest and fullest invitation that is really out there. So the first way that the gospel is the truest and best version of inclusion is because it's our story and it's, it's allowed to be done with, with, with true motives. The second way that the gospel is the truest and best version of inclusion is that it's true for us right now. The New Testament speaks about our salvation and not just, it's okay if you kind of come near Jesus, if you, or if you come near God, if you go through Jesus. It's not just you are kind of welcomed or you, you can come in if you want. But the New Testament speaks about our salvation in these type of words. You are wanted. You're chosen. You're accepted. You're desired. And you're kept. There's a big difference between you are welcome here and we welcome you. Right? One's active, one's passive. You are welcome here is passive. It's saying you can be a part of my block, be a part of my city, be a part of my family. We welcome you is, is saying we want you here. I am moving towards you. I want you to be a part of my block, of my business, of my family, of my friend group of my church, and that's the one that Jesus offers. So much more than it's okay that you live here in our city, in our state, in our country. But rather, we welcome you. We welcome you because Christ has welcomed us when we were just as far or even farther away from him. And even though these signs fill our neighborhood, practically, at least in our circumstance, very few people have welcomed us. To be honest, we've lived in our house for six weeks maybe or, or something, and I could be wrong, but I, I can only remember one neighbor coming over to our house and welcoming us to our neighborhood. Which again, could be very, you know, could be very random or circumstantial or whatever. But the point is, these signs are everywhere. Our city says, we welcome you here, but that's what they mean. It's okay that you live here. We'll, we'll allow you to live here. It's not that big a deal if we have very diverse and different group of people living around us. But that's so different than the inclusion that Jesus offers where he says, I am welcoming you. I'm moving towards you. I want you. I desire you. I choose you. In Christ, we're not just included or welcomed, but we're wanted. We're desired. And that's why what Jesus offers is so much better. So much better than a good idea and a good phrase that's on a yard sign. And by God's grace, imperfectly, but still in many ways, 
that's carried out by the church. When the body of Christ, when brothers and sisters in Christ love you and include you, pursue you, and show you that you're wanted, you get a reflection, you get a taste, you get a feeling of what is true for you spiritually in Jesus. And then third and finally, this inclusion that comes through Jesus is truest and best because it's eternal. It's not just you can live in our neighborhood or you can kind of be in our friend group for a few years or even a few decades, but what Jesus offers is forever. For those of us who have accepted his, his invitation of salvation, we will live with God and we will live with him forever. The end of the Bible speaks of God living amongst his people, living with his people and forever in paradise. So some of you so far have been kind of chomping at the bit saying, well, that's true. But not everyone is saved. Spencer, get to that part. Which I will say, definitely will say. And that was also part of John 3, what, what we just read. This is all true. Everything that I've said is true, yet not everyone is saved. Again, Craig Lucan writes, the irony of this inclusion, so the Jesus' inclusion that we just have been talking about, the irony of this inclusion is that it simultaneously and necessarily excludes everyone who does not come to Christ and trust him alone for salvation. So not only is Christianity the most inclusive faith, because anyone, anyone can receive it, but it's also the most exclusive because it demands that the only way that you come to God, the only way that you can be saved, the only way that you can experience forgiveness of sin and eternal life is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Our same passage today, in Jesus' own words, he describes not everyone saved. People have to become saved. People have to believe in order to be saved. And that salvation only will come through him. Not through Buddha, not through karma, not through Allah, or even living a perfect life, or having lots of good deeds, or welcoming different people into your neighborhood or into your life. And we can't forget, this is two sides of the same coin. Same Jesus, the same teaching, the same passage. Does he desire all to be saved? Yes. Does he love the entire world? Yes. Does, he in, does his invitation, does he offer it to everyone? Yes. Yet, not all are saved. Apart from faith in Jesus, we're not okay. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone, we're not okay. The way we become in Christ, John 3 language that we just read, the way that we receive Jesus' invitation and salvation is through belief. Back to our passage today. Verse 15 says, Everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then again in verse 16, Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So belief must happen. Apart from belief... This invitation, this inclusion, does not happen. And Jesus is very clear about this. So when he says belief, just to be clear on what he means, he's not just saying that you kind of agree that some facts happen, right? Demons and, and Satan believe that Jesus actually did die on a cross. But rather, this type of belief is a trust in the person of Jesus. 
putting all your eggs in that basket, putting all your hope in Jesus' Jesus's work on the cross on our behalf. A faith that puts your identity in him and in him alone. Not in your good deeds, not in the inclusion that you show, not in some other faiths that you kind of dabble in, but a faith that puts your identity in Christ, uniting yourself to him, and then resting in the sufficiency of his work and not your own. So again, to remind us of our need for him, Jesus tells us in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So remember the context of our passage. A religious ruler, a guy full of good deeds, a guy on the outside that looks really good and probably accepted by God, most people would think. He comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, how do I get into your kingdom? How is one really saved? And this is Jesus' response. He makes it clear that if you're not in him, if you're not putting your full trust in him, you stand condemned already. So he's telling this religious ruler, this kind of pastor, theologian, seminary professor of the day, unless you believe in me, you are not in. You still stand condemned. It's not just here, but later on in John, Jesus says another very famous passage that we need to remember. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to God. There's only one way to salvation. Only one way to forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And it is through Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it crystal clear. He loves you to death. Literally to death. But you must receive him. You must believe in him. All roads don't lead to the same place. All religions aren't the same and equally valid. And every good intention doesn't get you to God. And it's not just Jesus who claims this. All throughout the New Testament, the exclusivity of salvation only through Jesus is all over the place. Just a few that we'll look at. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is in Jesus alone. 1 Timothy 2.5 also says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man, Jesus Christ. This second passage here might be a little confusing here. So very briefly, so actually my, my wife got our kids this really cool story, kids' story called the, the Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And it's very brief, talking about all the Bible. And it essentially it says at the beginning, God created mankind. Everything was perfect. We rebelled against God. And so we couldn't stay with God. Our sin distanced us from God. And so we were kicked out of the garden because of our sin. And he put two angels there with flaming swords so that we couldn't get back in. Both as an act of punishment, also as an act of grace. And then later on in the story, when God uh, covenants with, with the nation of Israel, with his people, and when he, makes, uh, when he has his people make the temple, and the inside of the temple is the Holy of Holies where God's presence actually lives. So in, in some ways, he's actually moving towards his people and living with his people. Yet, what separates the Jewish people from God, even though he's kind of living amongst them, what separates them is this curtain. And what's on this curtain? There's pictures of angels with flaming swords, reminding God's people of 
Our sin is keeping us away from God. So it happens at the beginning, happens throughout Israel's history. They're constantly reminded, reminded, I can't get back to God because of my sin. And then what happens at Jesus' death? You guys know. This Jory just saying about it. At Jesus' death, that curtain was torn. The, the symbolic picture of we can't get back to God because of our sin is removed through Jesus' death and resurrection. So this First Timothy 2 passage says, for there's one God and there's one mediator. There's one person that gets us back to God. And that is Jesus Christ through his death, through being lifted up as he predicted in John 3. God sent his son into the world to die on a cross, raised from death, and bring an offer of salvation and hope to all who believe. All because of his great, great love for the world. Yet we must do something with this truth. If we're all saved apart from trusting in Jesus, then what was the point? Why did he show up and live a perfect life and then was betrayed and murdered and tortured? And although his invitation is offered to all, and we mean that in every sense of the word, the great and eternal inclusion that we see in Christ, the great welcome from Jesus himself, we must accept it. Apart from accepting it, apart from putting our full faith and trust in Jesus, we stand condemned. We're on the outside. We're not neutral. There is no neutral option. Jesus doesn't just let us have any other conclusion than that. He's very clear. He loves us, and he wants us to come near to him. So two things as we leave here today. Accept that invitation from Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian here today, the first two-thirds of this sermon was speaking all about how much he loves you, how much God the Father loves you, that he would give his child to win you back, and how much Jesus loved you, that he would be the, the only unjust and innocent person that would be crucified and killed and murdered on our behalf. So if you're not a Christian here today, know how much Jesus loves you. Know that this invitation, he offers it to you. He really does offer it to you. doesn't matter about your past. doesn't matter how you feel about yourself, how great you think you are, or how not great you think you are, where you come from, what you identify with. Know that God loves you deeply. And also know that there's no kind of middle ground. There's no neutrality. The thief on the cross and the terrorist, Paul, that kills Christians in the early church, those guys get in. And some of the really good-looking people don't get in. Why? Because the thief on the cross and the terrorist that's murdering Christians and destroying the church repent and they believe. This John 3 stuff that we just talked about. They put their belief in Jesus Christ and what he did, not on what they did. And the good people that follow all the rules and look really good on the outside and don't think that they need Jesus, they're on the outside. And secondly, Christian, if you're a Christian here today, let me just speak to Hiawatha Church. Move towards others. Move towards our city. Move towards your neighborhood, your family members, your coworkers. Move towards them with the greatest, truest, and longest-lasting inclusion that comes from Jesus. Because this is our story. 
How can we not do this? The same Holy Spirit that, that made this story happen is the same Spirit that lives within us. If you're a Christian here today, you have been included. You've been welcomed by Jesus Christ. So share that. Share that in love. Share that through words. Share that through actions. And see today how in the gospel it is the greatest and best version of inclusion that is out there. See how the gospel is the greatest need that everyone in this world has. Don't be afraid to move towards our city, our world, people who don't know Jesus yet, and actually show them that what's under all your desires and all your goals and what you're valuing is essentially a, a need for the gospel, a need to be reconciled to your God. So let us as a church move towards a lost world with the greatest news, humbly because we know that this is our story. We know that we were far, far off from God. We were alienated from God. We were without a home, without a family. We are even his enemies. But he still pursued us. He wanted us. He welcomed us to himself. Let's pray. God, we thank you for such good news. Such good news. In our hearts, many of us really like this idea of inclusion. We see these yard signs. We see what our, our city and what our uh, state and even country is about. And it resonates with us. And maybe we don't even realize why we, we want to welcome refugees and immigrants and, and people who are different than us. But ultimately, that's because it's, it's, if we're Christians, that's our story. We've been, we have been won back. We have been welcomed back when we were distant and far, far away from you. So God, we pray that uh, we would believe that good news. And God, as a church, send us into your city to bring that good news, to not be afraid of interacting with, with people who are different than us. Help us to truly believe that we have the good news that people really need and really want. Thank you for your great salvation. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to move into a time of uh, taking the Lord's Supper together as a church uh, today. So once a month, like Chris said earlier, we uh, flip our service around in order to kind of focus on the Lord's Supper, which Jesus institutes. So, so the, the night before his death, he met with his disciples and he said, they had the meal similar to this, and he said, do this again and again to remember what's about to happen, to remember my broken body, which is symbolized by the bread that he broke, and my spilled blood, which is symbolized by the, the grape juice or wine, whichever you'd like to take. And whenever you do this, remember. Remember the gospel. Remember this good news. Remember my death on a cross and that the, the veil was torn when that happened. And then remember that I was resurrected from the dead so that you can have that same life with me, that you can have that eternal life that I promised you in John 3. Another word for the Lord's Supper is communion. The reason that we call it communion is because now through Christ, Communion with God is now possible. Apart from Jesus Christ, we are, we, are, we are aliens, we are enemies, we are distant from God, but through Jesus we can now have true communion with him. We can be welcomed back to him. We can be close to him. We can be in Christ, as the New Testament says, over and over and over again. And then flowing out of that, we can be in communion with other Christians, which is called the body of Christ. So today, as you are taking communion as you're breaking the bread and, and drinking the wine or the grape juice. As you're seeing other Christians come down this aisle and, and take this, see, see the reality, the spiritual or a physical example of the spiritual reality that we can now have 
true commun- communion, community, friendship, love, acceptance, and inclusion, not just with Jesus Christ and God, which is huge, but also flowing out of that with uh, other Christians, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. So today, uh, we're going to invite you to take communion if you are a believer, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin, this is for you today. Jesus wants you to take it today. And the way we do it here at Hiawatha, the band will play uh, four songs this morning. You can walk down the center of the aisle, break off some bread. We have gluten-free crackers if you need that. Pour some grape juice or wine. And you can go back to your seat and take it. You can sit in the front row and take it. There'll be people up front that would love to pray with you. Uh, whether you have something specific or you just want to add that to be a part of your worship this morning, just say general prayer. And the uh, person up front will pray for you. Um, and then you, yeah, take it, take it however you want, but uh, take it remembering Jesus' death uh, on, on our behalf as you take the bread and, and, and drink the wine. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray, and then anytime during those songs, feel free to come down and, and uh, take communion. Let me pray. God, we thank you for what this, what this meal symbolizes.